When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the season 4 finale of the Forza Napoli podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you so so much for listening. Apologies for the delay, it's been a little while since our last episode. I gave myself a bit of time off after what was a pretty grueling season, but I am excited for today's episode, which will be entirely dedicated to Napoli's new coach, Rudy Garcia. Now, I know this isn't exactly breaking news anymore, but I think Napoli fans are still very interested to learn more about our new coach. My hope with this episode is to try to give you a sense of both the good and the bad of Rudy Garcia with the help of a couple of guests. In part one, I'll share some information that was provided to me by a Lille fan. That was a very positive time during Garcia's career. I'll also provide my opinion on the negative public reaction to this appointment. And then in part two, I will be joined by a Lyon fan to talk about Rudy's return to France, which was a rather negative time during his career. And hopefully with that, you will have enough information to form your own opinion and expectations for Napoli's new coach. So let's get started. Now, I don't want to go into too much detail about Garcia's specific accomplishments and failures, particularly at Lille, Roma, and Marseille. I've already covered that in a piece I wrote for the website, which you can find at fortsanapolipress.com. Thank you to everyone who already read the article. I got a lot of positive feedback on it. The article was strictly fact-based, whereas I'm going to give you more of my opinion in this part, though admittedly, the reason I wrote that article was to shift opinions of Garcia a little bit, or more accurately, I was trying to convince people to at least give Garcia a chance, because a lot of Napoli fans, myself included, were very surprised by the appointment. But I think as a fan base, we collectively convinced ourselves and each other that maybe this wasn't such a bad appointment after all, and I think the article might have helped in that regard. Now, I'm not saying Garcia guarantees that we repeat as champions or that we go deeper in the Champions League. There's still plenty of risk with this appointment, and as you'll hear in part two, it could also go horribly wrong. But given the state of the league, which I'll get to later, I think Garcia has the capacity to do those things. Before I get to my opinions though, I spoke to a Lille fan who goes by the handle LOSC. He sent me a few messages about Rudy, but I thought they were pretty insightful, so let me share them with you now. With respect to his tactics, he said Garcia's game was good in a 4-3-3. He played with a flat defense, meaning his back four played in a line, which is fairly standard. He had two heavy center backs in Adil Rami and Aurelien Chejoux. By the way, Aurelien is the French of Aurelio, just saying. Perhaps that's why Garcia likes Kevin Danzo, because he already has a heavy CB in Amir Rachmani, and Danzo is also a big boy. However, the rumors about Danzo are starting to cool off, so we'll have to wait and see. We'll do some transfer talk at the start of next season. In the midfield, he had a small to mid-sized trio of Johan Kabay, Rio Mavuba, and either Florent Balmont, or Idrissa Ganagay. That's slightly different than the build of the Napoli midfield because Angisa is a big body, but he's still technical enough for Napoli's midfield to function in the same way that Lille's did. That is, the midfielders will drop to collect the ball 
and progress it forward by making short passes in the form of triangles. In the attack, the dribblers or wingers play in the corridors or channels, which is consistent with what I wrote in the piece. That opens up the space for the fullbacks to get forward down the line. At Lille, he had Eden Hazard and Gervinho. At Napoli, he has Kvicha Kvarskhelia and possibly someone new if Chucky Lozano does in fact go to Saudi. Finally up top, he had a finisher in Musa So, and of course, that role will be filled by Victor Osimhen, or at least we hope so. Of course, De Laurenti said that if he receives an indecent offer, then he'll have no choice but to sell. However, at the moment, it seems more likely that Victor will stay, and I'll touch a bit more on that in a little bit. So for me, the big takeaway is that the current Napoli squad is built quite similarly to Garcia's Lille squad that won Liga in 2010-11. And for that reason, and the fact that De Laurentiis publicly stated that he was searching for a coach to use a specific system, I think we will see Rudy maintain the 4-3-3. Statio Aloisi also commented on Garcia's coaching style and his personality. He said Garcia is a very good communicator, he knows how to find words and learn about the history of the club to ensure that he is loved. However, by the end of his tenure at Lille, he was too greedy with recruitment and the payroll exploded. I don't think that will be an issue at Napoli because De Laurentiis would never allow his payroll to explode, and if the coach has a problem with that, then he probably won't last very long. Okay, next I want to address how most pundits reacted to this appointment, which really bothered me. The experts seemed to collectively decide that this was an underwhelming appointment, and that De Laurentiis could have done better. I won't name names, but let me walk you through some of the common criticisms of Garcia that everyone seemed to be using. One was that he's hardly won anything in his career. For me, Luciano Spalletti disproved this argument because most people said the same thing about him. In fact, many people who were critical of this appointment were probably critical of Spalletti's appointment as well. You could even argue that Spalletti had won less than Garcia, at least as far as top 5 European leagues go. Spalletti won a couple of Coppa Italia and a Supercoppa, but he never won the Scudetto. The only domestic league he had won was in Russia. Meanwhile, Garcia won Liga, granted, it was before the reign of Nasser al-Khalifi. But the point is, the past is no guarantee of the future. Carlo Ancelotti proved that at Napoli as well. Ancelotti was one of the most decorated coaches we've ever had, and he failed miserably at Napoli. Now, you can say it's because he allowed his son to coach, but Ancelotti was ultimately accountable. So as I said in the article, past success, or lack thereof, is no guarantee of future success or failure. Another argument I heard a lot of people saying was that Garcia didn't even last a season with Al Nasser in the Saudi Pro League. For me, going to coach in Saudi is not evidence that a coach is washed, nor is the fact that he was sacked. I'm not sure if he had a resident visa when he worked there, but if he did, then Garcia probably paid no tax on the 5.6 million euro salary that he earned while he was there. Otherwise, he would have paid 20% income tax, netting about 4.5 million euros. In either case, that was probably his most lucrative salary as a coach, so he could have gone there just for a quick payday. I suspect that's what a lot of players are doing this summer, not to mention so many other workers in just about every professional field. A lot of people go to Saudi to make money, advance their careers, and then return home with a lot more money than they had before they got there. Prior to the arrival of Cristiano Ronaldo, Al Nasser were tied with Al Shabab at the top of the table with 8 wins, 2 draws, and 1 loss, and both of those clubs were 1 point clear of Al Ittihad. Between Ronaldo's arrival and Garcia's sacking, Al Nasser had a record of 8 wins, 3 draws, and 1 loss, so pretty consistent with the first part of the season. However, Al-Ittihad went 10-1-1 during that same period, so they moved to the top of the table 3 points clear of Al Nasser. So it's not as if the title race was over when he was sacked. Mind you, with a 16-team league, Al Nasser basically needed to win out to win the league because Al-Ittihad only dropped 5 points in the final 7 rounds. Also, it's not as if Al Nasser had this great history of winning the league. Al-Hilal have won it 18 times, 
and Al Nasser and Al Ittihad have won it nine times each, including the past season. Now, of course, signing a player like Cristiano Ronaldo should have made Al Nasser the favorites, so I suppose that is on Garcia. But Ronaldo's not the same player he once was, even in the Saudi Pro League. Al Nasser's official statement was that Garcia left the club by mutual consent, but the reports were that he got into it with the players, including Cristiano Ronaldo, after their scoreless draw against Al Faya. The last thing you want to do as a coach is clash with Cristiano Ronaldo. Now, I'm not saying that Ronaldo has always had this much power, but his coaches don't tend to last very long. During his season and a half at Manchester United, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, Michael Carrick, and Ralph Ragnick all got the sack. Prior to that, he spent three seasons at Juventus after his first season, Max Allegri was sacked, after his second season, Maurizio Sarri was sacked, and after his third season, Andrea Pirlo was sacked. Even Zinedine Zidane quit after his final match in charge at Real Madrid, though in truth, that had nothing to do with Ronaldo. Zidane didn't feel like he had the trust of Florentino Perez and the club. Nevertheless, the point I'm trying to make here is that Garcia's time at Al Nasser is not terribly relevant and in fact, not terribly damning of him as a coach. I suspect the people who make this argument have not actually looked at the results or explored why Garcia was sacked. Another common statement from Napoli fans and fans of other clubs alike is that this was an underwhelming signing that Napoli should have hired a better coach. When you look around at which coaches were available, to me, that ultimately amounted to saying that De Laurentiis should have spent more. That's because the available coaches fell into two categories. Either they were expensive simply because of their names, Julian Nagelsmann and Luis Enrique and Christophe Galtier probably fall into that category, or they were guys who were still under contract, like Vincenzo Italiano and Thiago Motta. To sign a coach who was still under contract, we would have had to pay some sort of fee to their current clubs to release them. Now, you might say that between winning the league, TV rights, and reaching the quarterfinals of the Champions League, Napoli just collected about 200 million euros in revenue, so why not spend a couple million euros to release someone like Vincenzo Italiano? The best answer I have to that question is, that is just not how De Laurentiis does business. He has policies, if you will, that keep the club sustainable. For instance, Last season, he imposed a salary cap of 3.5 million euros per season for new signings. This summer, we've learned that he simply will not pay a buyout clause for a coach. Now, we may not always agree with these policies, but the reality is that these policies and many others, like retaining players' image rights or self-producing 10 kits a season to name a few more, are why Napoli have hardly ever been in debt under ADL, and in truth, the reason why we ultimately won the Scudetto. That's why I was so frustrated to hear so many experts, including those who are supporters of Inter, Juventus, and Roma, stating that De Laurentiis should have signed someone better, which, as I've explained, amounts to saying that he should have spent more money. It's very easy to say spend more money when it's not your own money. Also, it's a slippery slope. It starts with spending more money on a coach. By the way, we tried that with Ancelotti and it didn't work. Then you spend more money on players. In fact, we may do that as well with Osimhen, who has reportedly been offered 6 million euros net to extend his contract with Napoli for two additional years. That's fine, but if you make a couple of wrong moves, you could get locked into high-cost contracts with players who aren't very useful to the club and become very difficult to move. That's exactly what happened at Roma a few years ago. Before you know it, the club is drowning in debt like Inter, Juventus, Milan, and Roma are and have been for a while. Just look at the state of each of those clubs. Despite injecting 700 million euros into the club over the past few seasons, Juventus were in such financial trouble that they had to resort to paying players under the table and systematically inflating players' values to generate capital gains. That led to a 10-point deduction from the league and now, because they won't have any Champions League revenue, they are probably going to sell either Dusan Vlahovic or Federico Chiesa or both. Inter racked up so much debt under Suning that when the Chinese government blocked Chinese companies from moving money out of the country, they had to take on a high interest loan from Oak Tree Capital. 
the interest is so high that Inter have had to sell their best players over the past few seasons, including Romelu Lukaku and Ashraf Hakimi. Had it not been for two individuals, Inter's results would have worsened, and if they finished outside of the top four, they probably would have defaulted on their loan, in which case Oak Tree would have taken over the club. But Beppe Marotta, who is probably the best sporting director in the world, managed to build a competitive squad by signing players like Eden Dzeko and Hakan Chalanoglu on free transfers. Meanwhile, Simona Inzaghi built a system that suited those players and took Inter to a Coppa Italia final, which they won, and to a Champions League final. However, even with all that revenue from the Champions League, Inter are still very limited in terms of what they can do in the Mercato. Marcelo Brozovic seems to be destined for the Saudi Pro League, and there are talks that in order to secure another loan for Lukaku with a 30 million euro obligation to buy, they'll have to sell Andre Onana for 40 to 50 million euros. In other words, the only way for these heavily indebted clubs to bring players in which Inter will have to do to replace expiring contracts like Eden Dzeko, they need to sell their star players. Both Milan clubs had a decade-long banter era before their most recent Scudetti, though you wouldn't know it talking to their fans. Milan suffered the fate that Inter are trying to avoid, and then over the past few years, they took it one step further. Elliott Group took over the club after Yi Hong Lee defaulted on his high-interest loan, Elliott subsequently sold a majority share to Redbird Capital, which was founded by Jerry Cardinale. Over the past three weeks, Cardinale has flipped the club on its head. First, he fired club legend Paolo Maldini amidst reports that Cardinale wants to take a moneyball approach to managing the club. That is, they want to rely on data analytics to build their squad, prioritizing profitability over sporting success. That has turned a number of players against the club. Rafael Leao said that he would have never signed his contract extension had he known Maldini would get the sack. Sandro Tonali was pushed out the door, though Milan did generate a record transfer fee for an Italian player selling Tonali to Newcastle for 70 million euros plus bonuses. Milanisti were furious with the decision because Tonali was a lifelong Milan fan, but I think we need to wait and see how Redbird spend that money to properly assess this decision. Nevertheless, Redbird are turning their own fans and their own players against themselves. Teo Hernandez, who also publicly criticized the decision to sack Maldini, could be the next to leave the club. Now, who knows, if Milan invest wisely, they could still build a competitive squad, they're linked to some very good players, but in North America the clubs who play Moneyball generally don't win titles. Finally, Roma might be on the right track financially under the Friedkin group, but they're still dealing with the debt of the previous owners, and Jose Mourinho is a bit of a wild card. Jose has done really well in cup play, winning the Conference League before reaching the final of the Europa League, but that came at the expense of next season's Champions League. Now, in fairness, Roma have had a ton of injuries, that's an altogether different issue, but missing the Champions League really limits what they can do in the Mercato as well. In my opinion, they've done extremely well to sign Hussam Aouar and Evan Indica on free transfers, apparently they just secured a dry loan deal for Diego Llorente from Leeds as well, I wonder if that will have any implications on their negotiations to bring back Gianluca Scamacca, but you'll notice that with all of these deals, they haven't outlaid any cash. That's because they need to first generate about 30 million euros in capital gains, and they have to do that by the 30th of June to avoid FFP issues. Their original plan was to sell off Tammy Abraham, another Italian club forced to sell their star player, but those plans went into the bin when Tammy unfortunately tore his ACL in Roma's final match of the 22-23 campaign. Even if Roma are still able to close a deal for Gianluca Scamacca, is that enough to make them Scudetto contenders? Personally, I don't think so. But the reason I mention all this is because I find it funny that so many fans and experts of these clubs had so much to say about the appointment of Garcia. More importantly, I'm inclined to think that Napoli are still in a very strong position to repeat as champions, 
so long as we don't lose too many key players. We know that Kim will likely leave the club, that seems inevitable at this point, that is a huge loss and we will have to replace Kim well to set ourselves up for success. There have been some rumblings about Saudi interest in Stanislav Lobotka, but he just extended his contract with Napoli, in all likelihood he is going to stay put. Amir Rachmani recently extended his contract, and Piotr Zielinski is reportedly willing to take a pay cut to stay at Napoli as well. Though we haven't seen anything official yet, there have been plenty of reports that Krychek Paraskelia will extend his contract for an additional year and see his annual salary doubled from around 1.5 million euros net to 3 million euros net. So the key for me is whether or not we have Victor Osimen. At the moment, I'm optimistic. Because Napoli don't have the same financial troubles as the rest of the Scudato contenders, we don't need to sell Osimen. I repeat, while Serie's big three are selling all their star players, the balanced budget Scudato holders do not have to sell one of the best number nines on the planet. That's why De Laurentiis has set a minimum transfer fee of 150 million euros. Typically when he does that, it means he has no intention of selling. So far, no one has come forward with that kind of offer. The reports are that we've only received offers for 100 million euros, which is nowhere near enough for ADL to let Victor go. But there are three clubs who I think could potentially step up. One is PSG, but only if Kylian Mbappe leaves. If Mbappe joined Real Madrid, for instance, I think PSG would go hard for Osimhen. Fortunately, I think it's more likely that Mbappe stays at PSG and then signs a pre-contract with Real Madrid in January. I just don't see how Real Madrid could pay 200 to 250 million euros for a guy who they could get for free in a season from now. Another club that's been linked to Osimhen is Chelsea. With all the shady player sales to Saudi teams, Chelsea could generate enough cash to make a serious bid for Osimhen. We know that Osimhen dreams of playing in the Premier League, however, Chelsea finished 12th in the Premier League last season, nowhere near the Champions League, and I imagine playing in the Champions League is very important to Osimhen as well. And then there's Newcastle, who are owned by PIF, the same fund that is facilitating all the shady transfers with Chelsea. We know that the EPL and UEFA turn a blind eye when it comes to those investors breaking FFP rules, so we'll see if they come forward with a monster bid. If they're willing to pay 70 million euros for Sandro Tonali, then 150 million for Osimhen wouldn't be so unheard of. At the moment though, the conditions seem to be right for Osimhen to stay at Napoli, which is obviously great for us. Apparently, De Laurentiis met with Osimhen's agent Roberto Calenda last week to discuss a possible two-year extension of Osimhen's contract. The reports are that De Laurentiis offered Victor 6 million euros net a season, well beyond his self-imposed cap of 3.5 million, but that was not enough because other top clubs are willing to pay him a lot more than that. However, apparently the meeting was very calm, very serene, and the parties will meet again soon. So I'm hopeful that we'll keep Osimhen. Perhaps the knowledge that Cavada will be staying will also contribute to Osimhen's decision to stay as well, or so I hope. We might lose Chucky Lozano to a Saudi club, but his contract is just about fully amortized, meaning any sale would be recorded as a profit. In my opinion, anything in the 10 to 20 million euro range would be great. We could then use those proceeds, plus a little bit more, to buy Chucky's replacement. So not only are we in a position where we can dictate the prices of our star players, we're also in a position to improve our squad. For instance, there are reports that we could sign Maxime Lopez from Sassuolo to replace Diego Deme as the backup to Lobotka. Lopez played under Rudy at Marseille, and he teased fans by posting a timer emoji on Instagram, perhaps indicating that a move is imminent. So when you contrast the current state of the other top Italian clubs with the current state at Napoli, and factor in that they have to make up a 16 to 20 point deficit from last season, then even if you don't rate Rudy Garcia, you have to like our chances of repeating as champions. Okay, that will do for part one. In part two, we'll be joined by a guest 
to talk about Garcia's time at Lyon. Welcome to part two of the Forza Napoli podcast. If you like the show, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Forza Napoli pod. It's entirely voluntary. There are no set tiers, but it does help us to continue to produce content both on the podcast and on our website at ForzaNapoliPress.com. All right, I am joined now by a guest to help us with our profile of Rudy Garcia. He is a fan of Olympique Lyonnais. George Rodriguez, welcome to Forza Napoli. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me here. Oh, the pleasure. Great coach of Rudy Garcia. <laughs> yeah, this this might be an interesting conversation. I'm very curious to get your insights and your thoughts on Garcia because, of course, Lyon was sort of the last big club, I guess you can say, that he coached for. I mean, he spent less than a season at Al Nasser, and then Ronaldo fired him. So I don't know if we count that. <laughs> Just like Ronaldo tends to fire everyone that coaches him. I, in the piece that I wrote about Garcia, I noted that if you look at Ronaldo's last six or seven seasons with whichever club he was at, whether it was Real Madrid or Juventus or ultimately Al Nasser, Every season, the coach got fired. <laughs> so I don't know. And and the reason minus I Man United, that, minus Man United, they fired him. Well, even at United, though, they went through a few coaches before they fired him. But I mentioned that only because a lot of people have looked at the Garcia signing and said, "Oh, well, lucky didn't even cut it in Saudi." You know, to me, I just look at that as a a quick payday, and I'm probably not going to read a whole lot in, into that season. So. For me, Lyon, his two seasons or one and a half, we'll, we'll get into his tenure there, are kind of like the last time he coached, certainly the last time he coached in a top five European league. So we definitely want to get your insights on his time at Lyon. But before we even get to that, I mean, obviously you're a fan of French football in general. You watch the league. I'm curious to know, you know, if you, you had any thoughts about Garcia from his time at Marseille, because after he left Roma, which was a pretty successful time there. He returned to France and he spent three seasons at Marseille. Did you get to see him much or did you just have any impressions of him while he was at Marseille? I just remember when we played against him, we always won. <laughs> we always won on that case. I just remember he always, Rudy would always like poo-poo about Lyon every time to appease the Marseille fans. And um, well, how karma folds full black circle when he got hired by us that us fans would be so appreciative of him and i'm saying that very sarcastically everyone we remember everything of what he said so we weren't too thrilled that he got him uh, as the coach to replace silvino which was uh Juninho's first coaching signing of the, his sporting directing career so for fans who maybe don't watch much league is that a rivalry like is do leon and oh yes <laughs> oh yeah it, uh, marseille and leon is probably a big rivalry for Lyon. Like it's the Choc Olympique because it's like both Olympic Marseille, Olympic Lyon. We just never get along. <laughs> it's always been like that. Our other main rivals now currently in Ligue 2, but before it was Saint Etienne as well as our other rival. We do have a mini rivalry with PSG, but ever since the Qataris took over, it's been like eh, like that kind of thing. So those are the two main rivalries. It's just Saint Etienne and Marseille. Okay, yeah, I mean, PSG are kind of in a league of their own now with uh, the money they have behind them. So let me just quickly recap a little bit of the results that Garcia got while he was at Marseille, and then we'll dive into his time at Lyon. So in that piece that I mentioned, I suggested that actually his time at Marseille was might have been his worst spell as a coach, at least as far as domestic competitions go. He did manage to take Marseille to the final of the Europa League that season. That was actually a squad that featured a current Napoli player in Andre Franck Zambo and Gisa, although he was much younger at the time. I think he was only 20 or 21. Garcia actually commented on Angisa in his press conference where they introduced him as Napoli's coach. And he said he was only just a boy then, but he was a mountain. <laughs> I mean, Angisa is a big guy. And he noted that he's taken a leap in quality with the moves that he made in Spain and in England before he ended up at Napoli. So obviously the Europa League final is impressive, but domestically Marseille didn't really do so well. In his first season in charge, they finished fifth in the league, 16 points behind Champions League qualification. They had a really difficult start to that season with two draws and three losses in their first six matches. 
even though they had a decent squad, they had guys like Bunasar, Maxime Lopez, who's now at Sassuolo, Bubakar Kamara, Dimitri Payet, Remy Cabela, Florian Tovin. Marseille still lost 10 matches that season, which is just not good enough. Garcia did seem to sort things out in the second half of the season. Marseille didn't lose a single match in their final 11, but they still drew five matches. And that was an issue the following season as well with Lucas Ocampos added to the squad. Marseille lost only five matches that season, which is really good, but they drew 11, so they still finished fourth in the table. And then the 2018-19 season was probably the worst of his entire coaching career. Marseille finished fifth in the league again, 11 points away from the Champions League qualification, which for those of you who don't know, only the top two teams in Liga are guaranteed group stage, then the third place team plays in the Champions League playoffs. So fifth is actually two spots behind the Champions League. And that season, Marseille won less than half of their matches. They only won 18 matches out of 38. They drew seven and they lost 13, which is really not what Napoli fans want to see in, in the incoming coach. The main reason they didn't qualify for the Champions League was because they just had a horrible record against their direct rivals. Of the eight matches against teams that finished above them in the table, Marseille won only one and they lost all seven of the other seven matches. On top of that, they finished bottom of their group in the Europa League with only one point through six matches. They were eliminated by Strasbourg in the round of 16 of the Coupe de la Ligue. And worst of all, <laughs> this one, when I saw it, I was like, oh, what are we getting into here? <laughs> um, they were eliminated by Andrézieux Boutillon FC, which is a fourth division side that I probably just butchered the name, but it's my best French for a Canadian, <laughs> in the third round of the Coupe de France. So all in all, it was a pretty dreadful time at Marseille for Garcia. Aside from reaching the Europa League final, probably the only positive was that in his second season, Marseille scored 80 goals, which is quite a few, but PSG, Monaco, and Lyon all still scored more goals that season. So for me, his time at Marseille was probably the worst. Let's move on now to the reason we brought you on this show, George, and that's Rudy's time at Lyon, where he spent... Less than two seasons, I guess we can say, because he joined... 18 months. We'll say 18 Yeah, 18 months. months. I mean, he joined, was it six, seven rounds into the se the first season? I just think it's October 15th, so I know it was the week after international break. Okay, so I think he joined... it was like seventh or eighth. Right. And then that season, of course, was cut short because of COVID as well. So that's, that's where we're getting the, call it 18 months, is like half season in his first year and then a full season in his second you mentioned that Lyon fans were not too happy about him joining the club because of the comments he made when he was at Marseille. It was a pretty wild season on and off the pitch. I mean, the off the pitch was the whole COVID, you know, lockdown, playing behind closed doors, and then France actually cutting the season short, which was, I think France was the only league to actually do that, maybe. Scotland. Know. Okay, yeah, in <laughs> Scotland. Certainly the only top five league in Europe. The results domestically were so-so maybe they would have been better had the league been played out to uh you know its conclusion but Lyon did really well in the cups first of all what were your thoughts on the season in terms of how it played out and then I'll I'll get your thoughts on whether opinions changed of Garcia by the end of the season for the 1920 season well I'll be honest with you it, it kind of like is a TBD because we couldn't finish the season so we couldn't figure out if we were going to get Europe or not. I know we were in a race for it but at that moment I think it was a point behind the next place. I wish I could remember off the top of my head but I just know it was uh, I think it was either Lille, Ren or one of the two teams from there I believe we were in a race with like, for Europe and I think we lost the last game against Lille before they closed everything down one nothing in Lille. So. Lyon finished the season I just pulled it up with 40 points which was one point behind Nice and Rennes. Oh, okay, I was, I was way off. I'm sorry. That's okay, but, but I mean, only 28 rounds were played, right? Yeah. So, I mean, in theory, with 10 matches still remaining, had the season been played out... We could have possibly gotten Europe. Easily could have finished top five, right? Mm -hmm. And then potentially, depending on how those results went, maybe top four, right? Yeah, it depends, because it, obviously that time... Because I remember we beat Juventus the week before, 
or a couple weeks before that, we would have had the second leg afterwards. And um, we would have probably beaten Juventus outright and probably made a deep run in the Champions League. So there could have been some distractions in that 1920 season for us again in the league and possibly the League Cup. Who knows? Of course, we can't really. It's a coulda, shoulda, woulda because the French authorities decided to cut it short so that way they can have their new TV rights on on time in August and September of that year, which that's a whole different issue for another podcast or another day. But for me, it was good. I mean, overall, he went to a cup final. It seemed like every time he had a, he was coaching of something, he went to a cup final, whether it be Europa League for Marseille, for us as Coupe de la Ligue, semifinals of the Champions League, which is a bigger deal than you think for most people because we haven't been to a semifinals of a Champions League since 2010 season when we played against Bayern Munich. Who we play in the semifinals? Bayern Munich. <laughs> Go figure. But um, when we first found out that it was going to be Rudy, we were not too happy because not only was he critical of us when he was in Marseille, but he also managed our other arch rival, Saint-Étienne. Now, this was like 2001, 2000, 2001 time, but still, it you know how most fans are. They don't forget. <laughs> they don't forget when you coached your two other big rivals and you talked a lot of crap about us and then you just had to come to us and then be like mm, everything's okay we don't forget so we weren't really a big fan of him and it was okay results were mixed there's no consistency at that time so for the 1920 season it was more like a tbh but for his cup competitions he knows how to do good for a cup competition league play different story I think one of the reasons why De Laurentiis liked Garcia as a as a new signing. I mean, there's there's a whole host of reasons for why Napoli ended up signing Garcia, but one of the reasons was that he wanted to go further in cups, particularly in the Champions League. I mean, the Coppa Italia Napoli have won it a number of times, so that's that's a lesser target, I guess you can say. But you know, to put into context, he mentioned that. Lyon hadn't reached the semifinals of the Champions League since 2010. Napoli have never reached the semifinals of the Champions League. This past season with Napoli getting to the quarterfinals was actually a club record in terms of how far they've gone in that competition. So that could be part of the the logic for hiring him. He reached the semifinals of the Coupe de France. You mentioned the finals of the Coupe de la Ligue. Both times lost to PSG, which is obviously understandable given disparity in the Coupe de la League one was in penalties though and it was because Bertrand Traore let's not talk about that guy that guy was horrible but (laughs) it was by penalty kicks yeah you can hardly even even consider that a loss right I mean it's a coin toss at that point and then as you mentioned semifinals of the Champions League eliminated Juventus over two legs and then because of COVID the quarterfinal against Manchester City was just a single leg elimination match which is still, again, a very impressive result to get past Man City. And then, unfortunately, you know, it's just giant club after giant club. You run into Bayern Munich and get knocked out in the uh, semifinals, which was another single I felt that was more of a blessing in disguise because if it was the other way around, I think our mentality wouldn't have been the same. Right. So i rather have us done it through that route because we actually stepped up and actually played to our potential than going against a quote-unquote lower end team and then getting knocked out by some other team that's not yeah. of the same quality kind of thing. No, yeah, Napoli's, the other Napoli's a very similar club in that regard. Kind of play up to the competition, but also play down to the competition. And who knows, maybe because Liga ended early, that might have... I mean, there's pros and cons, right? Like, you could say maybe the players were more well-rested for those matches in, in Europe, but at the same time, you could argue that they would have been less in form or they would have been out of form because they just hadn't played enough. So who knows whether that influenced it or not. But given how well Leon did that season in the Cups, did the opinions of Rudy Garcia change by the end of that season or was it still kind of not so? It was still the same. Still the same in my opinion. It was great that he did take us to a final. It was great that he took us to a semifinal and pop onto a final because Bayern Munich at that time was just steamrolling everyone, but especially when he would play Barcelona. But anyways, it was going to be tough, but it didn't really change much of the matter. He, we still were, we were lukewarm. 
we'll say lukewarm is a nice way to put it. Okay, and then in his second season at Lyon, he did get the club back into a European position. How did that season go? Well, I mean, it's like one half FC, as I call it. Instead, instead of breaking it per game, bring it up per season. First half of the season, phenomenal. We were top of the table. We were first place. We were winning. We played in PSG. We won at PSG for the first time since 2008. We were steamrolling it. We had a good run of form. And then obviously we had a winter break. And that winter break, once we come back, everything just started to like not fall apart. It was just more like not playing to our potential. Like another one half was great. The other half was absolute garbage. And it just led to us to like dropping points, leading us out of the top three. And in the end, having to compensate of Europa League, which don't get me wrong, not bad, but we didn't have any European competition. So we didn't have to deal with traveling back and forth every week, every week going to other places with, at that time it's funny because the two times we were in europe it was those short like seasons where it's like well, every week was like champions league we always missed them but anyways top three was definitely no if ands or but for him to get fourth place was just a miserable i would say disappointing because you had no european competition to be distracted with you had some cup competitions but it was just the coupe de france that was it at the time and you didn't achieve just even a top three. So it was good for the first half of the season. We were dreaming, but then after things fell apart and he didn't, in the end, didn't deserve to have an extension because he didn't qualify for the league that we wanted to be in, which was the Champions League at that time. I mean, there seems to be a lot of parallels actually between Napoli and Lyon in the sense that Napoli also had one of those seasons. I mean, we've had it a couple of times, but Luciano Spalletti's first season in charge, they shot out of the gates were killing everyone and then in what used to be considered typical Spalletti fashion right around December January started dropping points to clubs they probably shouldn't have and ultimately fall short I noticed though that you know he did have some stretches like there was a 16 game run with no losses six draws and 10 wins and I think that was also during the time we played PSG too so that kind of factored into that 16 game winning streak because all of us let's face it we were like, oh, we're not going to win because we never win there. And then we won, won nothing, and we're like, what is going on? Then we were like, okay, something's happening here. And that's when. Yeah, and then the collapse happened. And, and that was the thing. Like I mentioned, you know, losing seven of the eight matches against direct rivals this season at Marseille. During this season, the results against direct rivals were a little bit better. I mean, as you mentioned, win against PSG, so split those two matches won both rounds against Monaco, who were in the top four by the end of the season, and only got a draw out of two matches against Lille, but they were the league winners that year. So, I mean, at least that improved, and then lost to Monaco in the quarterfinals of the Coupe de France. The other interesting thing is that you mentioned is with that winter break, I'll be curious to see how that plays out at Napoli as well, because in the season that's coming up is a Africa Cup of Nations year, which means that Victor Osimen and Angisa will be away for a portion of the season. I think, I mean, Cameroon generally doesn't go too far in the AFCON, so Angisa will probably come back sooner. But Nigeria, I mean, they could easily go all the way to the final, which means Napoli could be without their star striker, assuming he's still a Napoli player. You know, PSG might come in and pay a boatload of cash to get I mean, him. If Real Madrid sell Mbappe, I wouldn't be surprised. That's what scares me the most. Os- That's exactly what my biggest worry is that they probably would come with 150 million euros cash and, and scoop him up. But then you hope that Napoli invests that money and brings in a solid replacement. There's talks about Jonathan David as a potential replacement who you would be familiar with at Lille. I mean, I, I know him well as well because he's Canadian and I, I follow the Canadian national team and, Personally, I think he's a step down from Osiman. So hopefully Osiman stays at Napoli. Tell us a little bit about Garcia's tactics while he was at Lyon in terms of how he set up. There's been a lot of talk about, like he mentioned in that press conference that he had to adapt his formation to the squad he had. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about how De Laurentiis was looking for someone to play a 4-3-3 and he kind of suggested that he would at Napoli because that's what the squad is built for but at Marseille and at Lyon he had to adapt 
to the players that he had? I believe I know he'd like to do a 4-2-3-1 sometimes. I definitely know in the Champions League, he definitely did a 3-5-2. And I think it worked him perfectly because the wingbacks were a little bit defensive. And then they obviously we had speed, so we used speed as the counteroffense with uh, Maxwell Corne, Carl Tokli Combi. I'm trying to remember who the right back was. I don't know if it was Malo Gusto or someone else. I could, been I'm trying to avoid that Rudy Garcia sometimes. I know it was my Napoli fans one here. Yeah, Carl Tuglu, Combi, and Maxwell Cornet. And I believe it was Malo Gusto, but don't quote me on that. I believe it is okay. Malo Gusto. And they all have, were very fast players. So a 3 5 2 at that time was perfectly fine because we were able to absorb the pressure and be able to use the counterattack and use their speed to, to get up the field and get the goal itself. I've seen him change over to a 4-2-3-1, sometimes a 4-3-3. So it really, really just depends on what opposition it was. And here's how he usually is. If he gets that win with that formation, he keeps using it until it doesn't work. And once he doesn't work, he changes it up with something else. And if it works, he'll keep doing that same one afterwards. That's how it was with us. And um not sure if this is like a tactic or not, but he liked it. He did this before with Marseille, but I'm not sure with who the person was. They like to tend to make a winger into a left back. <laughs> so in our case was Maxwell Cornet. He was a, I believe it was a left back or a right. He was a winger or a forward and got turned into a left back. Wasn't the best. Obviously because our left back at the time was on loan, Matteo de Siglio. <laughs> so pick your poison. <laughs> so he did okay, but it was, you could tell right off the bat that it's not. He's not comfortable with it. He wasn't happy with it. And he just had to live and learn. But if he was like, if I'm going to get minutes, this is the only way to do it. This is the only way to do it. And he did the best that he could. But yeah, he had a tendency of making a winger into a left back. So be careful. Victor Osman is a wing, like up forward. God only knows if he might be a a left wing, uh, might be a left back at one point. Who knows? (laughs) So I don't see that happening on the left side because Kvaras Helia is not a defensive-minded player. He's a pure forward. However, we often joke amongst Napoli fans that Giovanni Di Lorenzo, who's our right back, is our best right winger. And that's because neither uh, Hirving Lozano or Matteo Politano, who are our two right wingers, have sort of snatched that starting position away from the other, and they've kind of timeshared over the past couple of seasons. So it'll be interesting to see if he employs that on the right side and converts Di Lorenzo into a right winger, which I'd rather he not, but that's something I guess we can keep an eye on. Okay, last question on Garcia before we wrap up the pod. How did his departure from Leon go? Like, how did that play out, and how did uh, how did it go with the fans, with the club? Well, he had an 18-month contract, so basically the last game of the season, he was done and dusted. Didn't renew his contract, and pretty much he went on his own way, and then he decided to throw a little bomb, not literally people, figuratively, and um, kind of aired his grievances, and he took direct aim at the time, the sporting director, Juninho. Now, for those that do not know, Juninho Parabucanu is a legend at Lyon. He has won seven straight titles with them. He has won amazing free kick goals. Go see the game one against Barcelona that everyone likes to know about. That's basically him, and or the one against Ajaccio where he pretty much scored a free kick from halfway through the pitch. That's a big no-no. <laughs> Let's face it. You don't shit on a living legend and thinking that the fans are going to be okay with it. So, obviously, Juninho responded. Jean-Michel Alas at the time defended Juninho and kind of left on sour grapes. It was airing grievances that any typical coach that got fired would probably just be airing grievances. And that's what he did. And he's just shallow like that. So we kind of knew that he was going to be like that sometime and kind of showed his true colors and didn't end well in, the, in terms of basically in that chapter in the sour note pretty much in the end. Yeah, it sounds like he was not the right hire from start to finish i mean with the comments at marseille and then the comments about juninho at the end it was just not a great experience for anyone i'll admit it was a jean michel alas signing because jean michel alas doesn't tend to sign foreign coaches he tends to sign french coaches not just french coaches 
French coaches on a cheap that is a yes man because that's how he is. That's how he was. Luckily, he's no longer there anymore, but he just tends to, to stick to his guns of signing just French coaches with very little experience, or in this case, now it's Blanc, some experience, but just not very good and not caring at all. Okay, yeah. So again, another another similarity with Napoli where De Laurentiis doesn't necessarily only hire Italian coaches, but definitely wants a yes man and someone who's going to just do as he says and definitely likes coaches on the cheap, which something I, I touched on in part one, which is that there were options out there, but they were either too expensive, guys like Nagelsmann or maybe Gaultier, maybe Luis Enrique. I'm not really sure if they really ever wanted to come to Napoli in the first place and also refuses to pay a bio clause on some of the Italian coaches that had a year left in their contract, but ultimately ended up staying because that Laurentiis was not going to pay Tiago Motta's buyout or Italiano's buyout. So, or De Zerbi. Personally, I don't think that Zerbi was ever an option because he's been so adamant that he wants to stay at Brighton and see how that goes. So I don't know if that was ever a realistic target. I mean, he's the guy that everybody wants, but for me, he was never a real target. Okay, so that is where we'll leave it. But George, thank you so much for taking the time. And I mean, maybe not the insights that Napoli fans wanted, but we wanted honesty and truth. And so... Hey, you wanted some honest soup? I got you some honest soup. There you go. Awesome. So you can find George on Twitter at jrod2589. You can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5. And you can find the podcast at Forts and Napoli Pod. You can also support the show, as I said, on our Patreon account. And even if you don't want to do that, you know, give us a like, give us a follow, subscribe on your favorite or rating on your favorite podcast platform. That always helps. This will be the last episode of the season. So I just want to take a minute and say thank you to all of our fans, all of the listeners for supporting the show throughout the year. It's been a crazy year, obviously, for Scudetto in 33 years. We are going to enjoy this throughout the summer, even if, you know, we'll see how it goes with Rudy Garcia for the next season, if he can do it. I mean, you look around the league and the whole league is just an absolute shambles. So I still feel fairly confident that we can repeat We'll see how Garcia does. But thank you, everyone, for listening. I will be back not too long from now. I'm going to take a little bit of a a break and get some stuff done around the house. But I will be back shortly uh, with Season 5. And we've got some great things planned for Season 5 as well. So stay tuned for that. Until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre. Podcast Network.